Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting-edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two, and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Ken Hutchinson, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. His research focuses on neurobiological and behavioral mechanisms that are involved in the development of addiction, as well as potential methods of intervention for substance abuse. In this episode, Dr. Hutchinson reveals his emerging research that cannabidiol, CBD, can mitigate side effects of alcohol use disorder and opiate addiction. We discuss how CBD could potentially reduce dependency on these substances, curb cravings, improve symptoms of these disorders, and play a larger role in addiction therapy. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Hutchinson. And I'm wondering if we could just start by hearing more about your background in psychology and neuroscience and how you ended up in the field of cannabis research. Great. Well, um, Emily, thanks uh, first for, uh, for having me. And uh, yeah, so my, my background, I uh, received a PhD at Oklahoma State University, and I uh, started my graduate program um, with an emphasis on alcohol, and then um, eventually moved over to nicotine, and then went on to Brown University to do a postdoc, where I was finishing up my uh, training, and, uh, and there sort of continued to focus on alcohol. It wasn't really until oh, I would say maybe uh, 2006 or so that we started thinking about doing more research on cannabis. And up until that time, I would describe myself as more of a traditional substance abuse uh, scientist. And so really focused on, you know, what can we learn about how addiction develops and how best to treat it? How can we improve treatments? So uh, right along, uh, I guess, 2006, we thought it would be interesting to take a look at um, how people were using medical marijuana in Colorado. And we did our first study, the, the um, sort of federally prescribed way, which is to, to basically get your marijuana from the federal government, their grow operation in Mississippi. And, you know, so... Um, the bottom line is it's a very difficult process, and, but we, we went through the whole process, did all the paperwork, had the inspections by the DEA. We, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what happens is you do all this work and a FedEx box shows up in your university mailroom and you open the FedEx box and there's like a, you know, 20 marijuana cigarettes in there, right? So it's, it was kind of a strange process. Bottom line, that first study um, mid, you know, I would say 2005, 2006, uh, you know, it was it was sort of pointless because we did this study and uh, people would come into our university lab and they would smoke these government marijuana cigarettes. And what we discovered was that um, they were off. Basically, everybody said they're awful. These things are not like what we typically smoke. They're disgusting. 
And, uh, and so, you know, you do all this work and you find out, well, maybe your research isn't all that applicable because, you know, they're just, it's just not what people are using. And of course it was, it was low potency, um, THC. And then also, um, the other thing we found out later is that when they grow the marijuana at the federal government, basically what they do is they store it in steel drums until it's all used up because the DEA will, will not let them grow more until what they've grown is already gone. So the bottom line is, you, you know, you're using pretty, pretty old, um, low potency marijuana. Well, anyway, so that was, you know, kind of our first foray and it was more from a sort of a, an addiction perspective, but as Colorado legalized, we became much more interested on, in the medical side. And so now I would say, you know, we're interested in both parts, both the, the potential benefits and the potential risks. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I'd love to dive into one of your more research, recent research projects um, on the emerging effects of cannabidiol and potential applications to alcohol use disorders. So it sounds like this is kind of a, a mix of both of your research interests. And it also sounds from this initial research that there's some promise that CBD could improve some of the symptoms of alcohol use disorder. Absolutely. So, yeah, could you, could you explain this in more detail? And I'm also curious, what specific symptoms of alcohol use disorder did you look at? Yeah. So the, um, you know, again, my background traditionally is more alcohol uh, related, and we're very interested in, in um, finding new interventions that might potentially help people with an alcohol use disorder. So um, we're not the only ones who are interested in cannabidiol. There's been several papers that have come out recently um, and they're more, I would say, I would describe them more, as more theoretical papers because nobody's really done the, um, you know, the um, difficult research yet to actually experimentally look at the effects of, of cannabidiol. Um, however, again, there are several papers now suggesting that um, CBD may be useful, not just for alcohol, but also for um, other drugs. Um, so, for example, opiate use, there's been a couple of papers that have come out uh, recently suggesting that CBD might uh, curb craving, culicid craving for opiates. People are thinking the same kind of thing um, for alcohol. And, and then there's some other important pieces there too. So, for, so one theoretical um, sort of hypothesis here is that CBD might help curb craving, curb craving for alcohol. But another one is that CBD has some benefits in terms of inflammation that's related to alcohol. So alcohol inflames the liver, um, I'm sure you, as you know, and, and certainly long-term can cause liver disease. And alcohol also in large enough quantities and for, you know, over time uh, inflames um, the brain as well, right? So, so CBD, there, there's a little bit of research in animals suggesting may be protective in terms of the liver part of that. So in terms of protecting the liver, and there are also, of course, studies suggesting that CBD may be neuroprotective. So it makes sense then from um, both from a potentially a sort of a, a, crave, a craving perspective, so sort of helping people with craving and urges to drink, but perhaps even more importantly in terms of the potential neuroprotective side of things and the um, ability to uh, also help with inflammation of the liver. Mm -hmm. So... I it sounds like there is there are beneficial effects in kind of mitigating some of the physiological symptoms of alcohol use disorder, um, but could, could there also be any potential benefits in some of the behavioral side effects 
of this disease. You know, an individual who's once they're actively drinking, there can be violence or or, or abuse. Do you see any potential um, relationship between CBD or cannabis in general and being able to to mitigate some of these behavioral side effects that maybe aren't as measurable in a laboratory setting, but are, are very important. Yes, and so you know, also just to, to, to be clear too. Again, you know, what we're thinking here has not really um, been studied yet in a, in a you know um, in a high quality in a high quality study. But yes, absolutely right. So if you there are some um, sort of survey studies out there that suggest that that cannabis more broadly um, may actually diminish or lessen the effects of alcohol in terms of aggression. Um, and so yeah, that's um, I think that's definitely a possibility as well. That and we're talking more broadly now um, about cannabis, but that um, that they they certainly do not have the same effect on um, aggression and, and violence. And so um, and I, sh I should say again, these are more sort of cross-sectional survey studies that have, that have supported that notion. Mm. Yeah, could you break down this particular research project? Um, and exactly how you conducted it and uh, how many participants you had in the study and what you observed. Yeah, so, and, you know, the thing with the, I would say, I would describe our research right now is sort of at the very beginning in terms of looking at the effects of can, you know, cannabinoids on, on alcohol use disorder. <clears throat> so what we've done so far, is we've been able to go back and look at our existing studies and our existing samples to compare people who, um, use alcohol and cannabis versus those who just use alcohol. So we can look at some of these um, these mechanisms that I mentioned, like like inflammation, for example, or like craving, for example. So that that is um, a, definitely a step in the right direction. But what you want to do is then build on that, and you want to um, build a study that basically tackles this question from the very beginning. So what we have now is we have a grant and review where the idea is to basically recruit people who are um, wanting to reduce their drinking or quit drinking and, and basically who are using some form of cannabis. And we want to compare those people who are using um, primarily THC with those who are using one-to-one uh, -one THC CBD to those who are using primarily CBD. And the hypothesis, the hypothesis there is that the people who are using more CBD are the ones who will show the better outcomes in terms of reducing their alcohol use and also in terms of inflammation and some of the, the biological mechanisms I talked about. So, and have you also done research, are you able to extrapolate some of these results and look at the effects of cannabis in treating other types of addiction or substance abuse problems, um, maybe particularly opiate addiction or an addiction to prescription painkillers or, or heroin and, and what have you learned or what have you studied about cannabis's role to uh, mitigate or, or eliminate this addiction? Absolutely. So again, you know, we're, we're in the beginning, beginning phases, although this, this particular study is farther along than the, than the alcohol work. So we just had a grant funded about a month ago to look at the same kind of question. That is when people are using cannabis or some cannabis product to reduce their prescription opiate use, um, you know, A, is it effective and, and B, which types are, you know, more effective, right? So the, the idea is to find people who are planning to use a cannabis product to reduce their opiate use and then basically um, track 
track what's happening. So, and, and then to compare those who are using a THC product versus a one-to-one -one versus a CBD product. And the cool thing about this study is that um, as part of the study, people actually can choose which product they want to use and then they can switch if they don't think it's working for them, right? So they might start off, for example, in the group that's using the one-to-one the -one product and they try that for four weeks and we collect a lot of measures and we collect blood we can look at inflammation we can look at you know opiate levels in the blood cannabinoid levels in the blood and then they decide after four weeks is this working for me yes no if the answer is no then they can switch to one of the other products right so they might switch from a one-to-one -to, -one to a primarily cbd product or they might decide to switch to a primarily thc product or they might decide that the one-to-one -one is working for them and they keep using that product we do that basically for 12 weeks. So they can switch once at four weeks, they can switch again at eight weeks. And the idea is to see, you know, basically they're trying to figure out what is it that people are doing and what is it that works. Um, so that's, I think, going to be a really cool study. Of course, right now, you know, we're, we're all in a holding pattern because of the, uh, the pandemic. But at some point, hopefully in the not so distant future, we'll be able to get that study off the ground and get some answers about, um, whether these things really help people or not in terms of reducing their opiate use. Mm. And how do you measure whether um, the cannabis product is working effectively? Like what mm. are the indicators of that? And is it just for the participant in the study to um, say this is helping me or this is not helping me? Or is the, is the goal to help them give up opiates or, or alcohol indefinitely? Right. So it's a combination of things, both self-report. So did they, did they basically tell us it's helping them? Um, you know, are they saying that they are seeing their use of opiate alcohol reduced? Um, but also we, we have the biological measures too. So we can look at blood levels of opiates and we can look at different biological indicators related to alcohol use. And then we also can track exactly what they're using in terms of um, cannabinoids by looking in the blood. So the idea is that we use both biological outcomes as well as um, self-report outcomes. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the cannabis therapy has been effective if the participant is able to just lessen their dependence on the substance, not necessarily give it up entirely? Yeah, that, that is definitely, you know, I, um, the, the goal is to look at reductions in use. And obviously, you know, there are people who would, many people who would like to reduce uh, reduce their use to zero, which is fantastic. Um, but but um, we're interested in overall reduction, um, not just complete abstinence. Mm -hmm. And how does this research fit into kind of the larger school of thought around addiction therapy, and especially um, in academia and in the laboratory model too? Because I, I feel like so much of addiction therapy is, you know, it's abstinence. It's if you don't give it up entirely, um, you know, it's not going to be effective in the long term. And I feel like addicts are often told, well, once an addict, always an addict. And it's uh, unless you're sober indefinitely, um, you, you aren't really improving, so to speak. Mm -hmm. so, so this research kind of seems to go against it, go against that, you know, that singular grain of thought. But, but how does it fit into to this, you know, larger, um, these other ideas and these other models yeah, and I think part of it is the recognition that that for some people, abstinence sh should clearly be the goal, right? You mentioned some people do struggle, um, you know, if, if they're not abstinent. Um, it's 
you know, it's difficult to use a little bit and not use a lot. But for other people, you know, an important goal is simply to, to reduce their consumption, for example, of alcohol to a healthy level. And so basically what the perspective we have is that um, both of those are, are reasonable, right? And, um, and that there are a lot of different people out there. And so we're trying to, um, you know, to, to be inclusive in terms of looking at, at, at um, use overall, but also abstinence. So that's, that's sort of our perspective on that. Mm -hmm. And I know you've also done a lot of research on the impact of um, THC and CBD potency in concurrent use of alcohol and cannabis. And I know this is very common for people in social situations to combine cannabis use with alcohol. Uh, so what did you learn from this research and, and what were your goals with it? Yeah, so, you know, it's, um, I think this is kind of an interesting uh, point, too, that fits into what we've talked about pre you know, previously. And that is, you know, the, the part of the hypothesis here is that um, CBD, you know, it may be um, less harmful and more beneficial than, than THC. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, given, I think, from the perspective of a lot of medical researchers out there. But an another important piece, though, is that, you know, it's not, it's not a black and white thing, right? So if you, for example, think about CBD products that people are actually using, a lot of them do have a small amount of THC in there, but less, you know, the product basically comes from um, hemp, which is less than 0.3% THC, but there's still some in there. And then when you look at some of the animal literature too, what you can see is that sometimes um, low, very low doses of THC actually seem to be helpful and not harmful. And so I think, you know, it's, it's kind of important to point out the nuance here that, um, that, that there may be some um, very small level of THC that's not harmful and could be helpful when combined with CBD. Um, more broadly, I think people view that, you know, if you combine alcohol and THC, they view that as a negative thing because THC may um, basically uh, increase the sort of intoxicating effects of that is THC may increase the intoxicating effects of alcohol and vice versa. However, there's also another school of thought that, that um, we, so we call substitution, where, you know, when people, if you look at people who are using um, both THC and alcohol in a recreational setting, oftentimes they're using less alcohol, right, which um, is not necessarily a bad thing. So two schools of thought out there. One suggests that THC may um, actually uh, substitute for alcohol and therefore people are using less alcohol. No what do you school. mean substitute for alcohol? So that basically you when you're using THC, a product for THC, you might be using less alcohol. Mm. Um, and then another school thought that they basically interact in, in a way that um, increases the effects of both and, and um, you know that that's a, it's a basically a complementary thing and which is kind of a bad thing. So um, so I think even in terms of understanding the effect of just um, recreational use of products of THC and alcohol, we still don't under, fully understand how those interact um, and what the implications are, for example, for somebody who is trying to increase, or sorry, trying to decrease their drinking. Having said that, though, it's pretty clear that, that CBD is the, the piece that potentially has the more the positive impact mm. on drinking. Right. And it sounds like that first study that we were talking about on alcohol um, use disorder, you were exclusively looking at CBD products? Um, correct. Yeah. So we, well, you know, honestly, so the, the thing in some of our earlier, you know, some of our earlier work, 
we basically we can only look at what people are already using. So, um, you know, and typically that's not CBD. So some, some small portion of people that we, um, we have looked at are using CBD and THC. A larger portion are using mostly THC. But we can make some comparisons, you know, across those different products. And what we've seen so far is that the, the products with CBD seem to be um, more helpful or have a more of an impact in terms of uh, decreasing drinking. Mm-hmm. And is that because the CBD molecule tends to have the more anti-inflammatory effects as observed? Yeah, so we don't, I mean, we don't, we haven't actually been able to put that together yet, um, okay. but that's the, that is the hypothesis basically. And in Scram, we just wrote that, um, you know, that there may be some, some important anti-inflammatory pieces there that uh, basically are the source of, of what's good about CBD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it's hard to separate, it, it, at least in the, in the studies that you're doing, it's hard to separate the, the particular molecules because the people are choosing their own products and the effects that they're having on their behavior or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think part, you know, part of what this is, um, the direction this is headed, you know, maybe along the lines that the, the more CBD in the product, sort of the, the better off, the better off you are kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it could be, you know, even if there's THC too, the more CBD, the better. Mm-hmm. And when we're looking at the concurrent use of alcohol and cannabis, have you observed any specific, let's say, acute effects um, of the concurrent use versus, say, just exclusively cannabis use or just exclusively alcohol use, um, as well as the long-term effects? Yeah, you know, we, we have really been wanting to do that study where we actually can um, have people use both of those, you know, both alcohol and cannabis in our mobile pharmacology lab to look at the acute effects. And we, have, we just have not been able to, um, to do that yet. Um, so, so in terms of the, you know, the, definitely there are some older studies out there looking at the combination of alcohol and, and um, THC. We'd like to do it now because of course the products that are out there now are different than what's been studied in the past. So for example, you know, now we can look at, um, you know, um, you know, edibles, right? So people might use edibles before they go out to the bars. And so we can look at the combination of um, edibles and alcohol. Um, there, you know, concentrates are a whole other category of, of um, cannabis products that people have not looked at in the context of alcohol. So I think it's important to, to do those studies again with products that people are actually using. But, um, you know, we, we it's just not uh, – you know, we've not reached a point where we've been able to find the time and um, energy to do that yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are there any other, I, I know we're talking about THC and CBD a lot, but are there any other compounds within the cannabis plant that you've started to look at or uh, might show some promise in terms of um, your, your work, especially on creating new types of effective addiction therapy? Yeah. So, you know, we have not had a chance to do that either. And we, and even um, recently, um, you know, with the paper we're working on right now, we do get measurable, measurable blood levels of other cannabinoids. So CBC, THCV. Um, so, you know, we can, we can, we can technically see that in the blood, but the levels are much lower than the levels of THC and CBD. And so it's really hard to tease apart you know, what, if anything, the other cannabinoids are contributing. So I think on down the road, what we're going to see is that other groups will be, um, you know, publishing studies 
looking at some of the cannabinoids and flavonoids and terpenes. And at some point, maybe we'll have something that we can look at in terms of, of what they contribute. But again, it's difficult because they, they are just present as such, you know, um, in amounts that are much lower than THC and CBD. It's, the THC and CBD tend to swamp the other things mm. uh, in terms of effect. Right. And that's probably just products, especially in Colorado, are being bred for really high amounts of THC and CBD. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's switch gears because I do want to talk about um, whether long-term cannabis use can cause structural changes in the brain. And I, I know you have some research on this and, and you approach this question most likely through your other work with you know, long-term alcohol use or other substance use over a long period of time, which certainly does cause structural changes to the brain. And I think that's well documented. So how did you go about researching this question and um, yeah, do you have results on, on you know, whether, whether long-term cannabis use does change our brain structure? Yeah, so we, we did quite a bit of work um, as part of our efforts on alcohol. And of course, when you're recruiting people who are using drugs for recreational reasons, they're not using just one drug, they're using you know, different drugs. And so we were able to tease apart and look at the effects of, of cannabis versus alcohol. And we did not see any evidence that um, that cannabis was associated with changes in brain morphology. If you look at the literature, there are a lot of small studies that suggest that maybe there is, but um, I would suggest to you that many of those small studies are flawed. If you look at the big studies, um, you will see that, that most, if not all of them, show no effect for cannabis in terms of brain morphology. Now, the caveat here is that Almost all these studies were done prior to legalization. And so, you know, I have no idea, for example, if you, if you were to take a group of people who were using concentrates and, you know, their blood levels are super high, like we've seen in, in our previous studies, if you take a look at those people 10 years down the road, I have no idea, you know, what we would find. Um, but, but by and large, it doesn't seem like um, cannabis has the same kind of effect on the brain that alcohol does. Um, two other quick points here. One is we did a, I had a grad student who did a study with aging participants, so um, older adults who had been using many years. And same thing when you compare them to non-using controls, we didn't see any evidence of, of changes in brain morphology. And of course, you would expect that after, you know, 40 years of, of cannabis use, if it was doing something deleterious to the brain in a morphological sense that we would see it. Uh, so I think that, you know, so far the evidence does not really support um, the idea that cannabis use changes the brain, at least in ways that we can see right now. Um, and I will also say one last thing, which is that NIH has spent um, tens of millions, um, probably more than that, on a new study where they take 10-year-olds, scan their brain um, at age 10, and then they keep doing that until age like 20, right? And the idea is that, and this is 10,000 kids that are in the study. So the idea is that we, at some point in, in the future, can determine what impact cannabis versus alcohol versus, you know, nicotine versus even things like, you know, cell phone use has on the developing brain. So I think we'll have an answer to these questions, um, I should say a more thorough answer to these questions 
um, in the near future, at least in terms of adolescence. And um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where the, that's at. Yeah, when did they start that research project? That was probably four years ago. Okay, so, you know, we've so got about 15 long. years to go. Yeah, I mean, it's probably halfway done. So I think I know you should start seeing some of the initial results too, because you know, those this, this 10-year-olds are now 14, right? And I guess in a few years, they'll be 16, 17. And obviously, you know, that's when they begin experimenting with alcohol and, and nicotine and, uh, and, and cannabis. So I think we should have some, some results in the near future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad to have that there is some research out there because I, I think um, something that is, there's a lot of fear around and, and lack of education or knowledge or information around how cannabis does affect the developing brain especially, you know, in teenagers and young adults. And I think it's established that our brains aren't fully developed until we're in our mid-20s. So what do you think, with your knowledge and based on your research, what do you think is the risk profile for teenagers and young adults who are, um, you know, experimenting with cannabis or consuming cannabis regularly? Um, And then also, like, what is the risk profile when you look at a teenager who's consuming cannabis versus a teenager who's experimenting or or consuming alcohol? Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So the the bottom line is, you know, it's it's we don't have to show that cannabis changes the brain to know that it's not good for adolescents. Right. And it's just, I think, an obvious common sense thing that if you're, you know, a son or daughter or you're an adolescent and you're using you know, a lot of cannabis on the weekend and you have a test on a, on a Monday, that's not going to go so well for you. Right. And, and so clearly, um, and that is something that your research on the acute effects of cannabis use kind of illustrated in adults. Totally. And I, and there's enough now, of course, there's also a fair amount of acute use um, research in, in adolescents and college students as well. And so, so we know that you know there are some nice um, meta-analyses out there and out there now showing that you know the acute effect. Well, the effects on in terms of memory and learning can last up to a few days. And so again, it depends on how much you're using and how regularly you're using. But um, regular, you know, use is is basically going to have a negative impact on your educational development. And uh, so it's just not a you know it's it's, it's pretty clear it can have a deleterious impact. <clears throat> So I think that, that um, you know, that's just, I think, good advice to parents and to adolescents that, you know, to, to be careful with the, um, with the cannabis because certainly there are some uh, negative effects that are, that are going to happen if you're, if you're using it regularly. Mm-hmm. And I think with teenagers, sometimes just experimentation is more common than regular use. So do you see short-term effects or do you see – um, negative effects in some of your studies when you're using small amounts sporadically, or is it really that um, consistent kind of heavy amount in your bloodstream that causes these effects on memory and learning? Yeah, and I think it's definitely more the um, acute effects. And so, yes, if you're, you know, even sporadically, you know, obviously the next day or that day, you know, you're, you could be compromised from a more cognitive, you know, cognitive learning perspective, right? So if it's sporadic enough that it's not having an impact on your on your education, your grades, that's not so bad, right? If it's happening regularly enough that it's having a negative impact on your education and grades, that obviously is bad. And so, 
And what you said is true. I mean, I think it's, you know, adolescence, that's, it's a time of experimentation on a whole range of, um, you know, different areas, right? And so that's not necessarily uh, abnormal. But again, you know, the, with increasing use comes increasing uh, negative effects. And I think that's where you have to be careful. Yeah, definitely. Well, circling back to some of your work on addiction therapy, um, I'm, I'm wondering if there are people or participants in the survey that are more um, that that are more responsive to kind of this cannabinoid therapy or this CBD therapy, or if there's certain genetic factors or even psychological factors that you've observed that would make someone um, maybe a really good target for, for this kind of therapy to be effective. Um, and I'm wondering if, yeah, if you've kind of made any observations on figuring out, all right, well, what makes someone a really good, you know, potential participant in this study or, or um, yeah. 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 It's a fantastic question and we just, we're not there yet. So I think okay. you know, the, the first step is to figure out just on average, does CBD do something positive in terms of say, you know, for example, opiate addiction or craving for opiates or alcohol or, or anything else, right? Mm -hmm. But then that question you just mentioned, that that's a very important question that we need to answer, which is, okay, if, if there is some positive impact overall, obviously there are going to be some people who respond very favorably and some people then who probably don't, like every other medication or every other intervention. That's, I think, what's most important is to identify those predictors um, to give people some sense of, so they know whether they might be a person who will respond favorably or maybe not. And so I think, it's, it, you know, the question you raise is super important, but it just reminds me of how far we have to go, right? We've got to get the first step is let's just get some studies done to show that there's some overall, you know, effect on average. And then the next step is to go back and figure out for whom and does it work and for whom does it not work? Mm -hmm. And I'm also wondering about, so the difference between these two types of addiction, addiction to opiates and addiction to alcohol, oftentimes addiction to opiates happens because of chronic pain, underlying chronic pain. That's typically how people, you know, start using painkillers or start using substitutes for painkillers um, because there is this physiological, you know, this physiological experience of pain that these mm -hmm. drugs are very effective against. So... I, I'm just wondering how that distinguishes, um, you know, the use of cannabis therapy. Like, is it possible that cannabis therapy might be more effective with opiate addiction because it actually addresses potentially the root cause of their addiction, um, whereas with alcohol, the root cause of, of their addiction might not be related to a physiological effect. It might be related to trauma or genetic factors. Right. Yeah, so I think that's a, it's a really good point. And, um, you know, so obviously there's that pain connection. So opiate use and the opiate epidemic in our country is tied, um, to, tied to pain, chronic pain, which is a huge problem in this country. So, yeah, the extent to which um, cannabinoids might be useful for pain also makes cannabinoids useful for um, the opiate epidemic. And, um, and that is not necessarily true for alcohol. However, I will say that it's, you know, it's, it's more than just pain. Um, you know, it's, it's a combination of chronic pain, sleep problems, inflammation, um, all of that's tied up in, in this connection with opiate use. And of course, cannabinoids may impact um, pain, inflammation, and sleep. And, and so with alcohol too, you know, 
you don't always have the pain, although there definitely is a subset of people who are both in chronic pain and using alcohol. Um, but alcohol probably um, also exacerbates chronic pain. It definitely causes sleep problems. And, uh, and of course, there's a subset of people who are using both opiates and alcohol. So, um, so it's absolutely true that I think um, that the pain connection makes a more uh, compelling argument in terms of using cannabinoid or studying cannabinoids in the context of uh, pain and opiates. But, um, but also those same sort of pieces are basically also there for alcohol. And again, it's that combination of, al I'm sorry, pain, um, sleep problems, inflammation, um, those are, um, and also to some extent anxiety, right? Those are all sort of uh, important pieces. Mm -hmm. And are you gathering, I'm assuming you're gathering that data um, on your, the participants in your study. Exactly. So we do try to do a careful assessment of sleep as well as anxiety and pain, right? And of course, uh, in the opiate study, you know, pain is um, very important. But even in the alcohol study, you know, we, we try to assess all those things as well. Mm -hmm. And the people in the, the participants in the alcohol um, study, are they, how do you, are they self-diagnosed with alcohol use disorder? Um, how, yeah, I guess I, I feel like there is a lot of denial among communities or people practicing addiction. So, uh, yeah, so how do you effectively recruit people who are, still practicing alcohol abuse disorder, alcohol use disorder, but, but are willing to admit it. Yeah. I mean, that's basically who we're recruiting, right? People who basically, you know, we advertise for people who want to reduce or quit drinking mm -hmm. and, and the people who decide that's what they want to do. Those are the ones who respond to our advertisements. And so, so yes, they are the ones who decided they really need to cut back or quit. And, um, and those are the people that we, people that we target as part. Of and often are these participants, have they tried other um, types of therapy? Have they tried Alcoholics Anonymous or, um, you know, some other type of way of weaning themselves off of alcohol or is this usually their first go? We get a full a range of people, some who have tried um, other things and some people who, who, you know, this is the first thing they've tried kind of, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. All right, so I want to talk about uh, one last study that you worked on about cannabis users age 60 and older, um, to, which I think is really important because this is definitely a growing segment of cannabis patients and consumers. And your study was designed to see if cannabis use had an impact on efforts to increase ex exercise in sedentary older adults. So, so I kind of interpreted this, and maybe I'm wrong, I interpreted this as you're looking to see if cannabis makes people lazier than they already are when it comes to working out or you not know, or not yeah um you know the bottom line is uh that is the stereotype but that's not what we're seeing and i think you know what we're seeing is the opposite that it may actually make them more likely to exercise and so the question is why or theoretically why might that be the case and it makes sense from a theoretical perspective and so so we hope to follow up on this with a much larger study. But the idea is that when you talk to older people, you know, the reason they are using cannabis or trying cannabis is because they, they typically have higher levels of pain, higher levels of, you know, more difficulty sleeping. And so um, it makes some sense that cannabis might make them more likely to get out more if it is, in fact, you know, reducing some of the inflammation and the pain, helping them sleep. Um, and this is anecdotal when you talk to people, this is kind of, you know, what they say. 
So I think it's an important um, study to follow up on to do a larger study to really determine what is it that people, older people, like why are they using cannabis products? What are they, what are they, what are the perceived benefits? And, and you know, the hypothesis is that one of the perceived benefits is that um, it makes things hurt a little bit less, which then allows them to get out a little bit more. And were you able to identify um, what types of cannabis products these users were using? Were they using high CBD tinctures or were they smoking flour? You know, it's, it's all over the map. And I think um, because it was not, you know, we did not uh, do a super thorough job the first time around. As we go, when we go back and do another study, the, ideal, the idea would be to look at same kind of design where we're looking at CBD primarily versus a mix of CBD and THC versus more THC. And these are typically, you know, people, um, well, so there are two basic groups of people. One that, you know, they've been using cannabis for a long, long time. They may be maybe more likely to be smoking it. And then there's the group that just started recently uh, experimenting with cannabis. They're more likely to be doing um, something orally, right? So edibles or tinctures or whatever. So, um, so yeah, it's, I'm very curious to see how this plays out because, um, for those people who are starting starting new, I'm I'm very curious to see what it is that they're you know using, and what are the potential risks and benefits. And it could be that um, could be that you know there are some risks there, um, um, but also obviously there could be some benefits there in terms of as I mentioned, um, you know less pain, more likely to get out, better sleep, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then my final question is, uh, it sounds like you have a lot of, you've done a lot of great research, but there's still so much to learn. So what is your most pressing question about cannabis and what do you plan to find out next? You know, we've pretty much hit on the things that I'm most interested in. I I would say maybe the one thing that we haven't hit on that I'm super interested in. So talking to some of the uh, neurologists and uh, the the doctors down at the medical campus, you know, and I'm sure this is true everywhere um, in the U.S. that they they basically, you know, day, they say a day doesn't go by when they're not asked by um, a dementia patient or the family a family member of a dementia patient about using cannabinoids, right? And so I think the I'm super interested in the um, use of cannabinoids in that population of older adults who might be showing early signs of mild cognitive impairment and early signs of dementia and or Alzheimer's. And, you know, again, it's this kind of this wide open question of, you know, what are the, what are the risks and what are the potential benefits? And one can easily see that, you know, potential for risks in terms of um, obviously what are the cognitive effects, risk for falling, but also there's some very interesting studies in the animal that you're looking at some of the potential benefits and, and, you know, in terms of um, everything from anxiety, irritability, sleep, um, and of course some potentially some, some neuroprotective effects, um, depending on the cannabinoid, that's sort of all on the table. So I'm, I'm very curious to learn more about the use of cannabinoids in that population. Yeah. And has there been, has there been any research at CU on that topic particularly, or is this in other universities or other? Yeah, no, I mean, there's been very little at all, period. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been some in animals and animal models, um, and that's about it. 
Mm-hmm. So again, so again, the fascinating thing people are using, you know, people are asking the questions, they're asking their doctors every day, and we don't have any answers because nobody's done the research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, cool. Well, is there anything? Yeah, are there any other research projects or papers that you have coming out that we haven't discussed? Yeah, I think they've covered almost all of it. So I think um, we're in pretty good shape. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with us. And yeah, I really look forward to getting this out to listeners. Awesome. All right. Well, have a good day. Cool. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.